All right, good morning on this uh, chilly morning in uh, February. So welcome to uh, First Fridays, everybody, and uh, we're uh, thankful for this day and uh, for uh, obviously making it here in the snow and uh, for uh, uh, Dr. Elizabeth Tung, um, who's going to present to us on some of uh, the research that, uh, that she's been doing. Um, why don't I uh, open us with a word of prayer, and then uh, we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've given to us. Uh, we rejoice and are glad in it. Um, Lord, we, uh, we are thankful for a warm building to be in, uh, for safety on the roads, and uh, that you could allow us to be here uh, this morning. Lord, we just uh, pray that you would be with us and uh, bless our meeting um, this morning. Bless our time together in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, this is Dr. Elizabeth uh, Tung, um, or more affectionately known uh, to those of us who work here as Liz. Um, Liz was, uh, uh, did her gap year uh, with us at, uh, at Lawndale Christian Health Center between college and medical school uh, back in 2006 and 2007. Um, so she was part of our um, team working with uh, Wayne Detmer and myself um, in, the, in the medical director office and did a variety of different projects and went on to uh, medical school after that and currently is at University of Chicago where she's an internal medicine physician and uh, doing uh, some clinical research and uh, so she has uh, done some of that research here at Lawndale Christian Health Center in the form of focus groups and uh, surveys and has uh, published a couple papers um, uh, on the impact of uh, community violence on um, how patients can care for their uh, chronic diseases and so um, I'll turn it over to, to Liz now, so thank you for being here uh, this morning. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, so um, my role at University of Chicago, I'm an internal medicine physician there, but I'm also um, a researcher in social epidemiology and health services research. So um, most of the work that I do is I follow social risk factors for chronic disease, and violence was something that kind of popped up. Um, over the last few years in particular, uh, especially in my clinic, a lot of patients started talking about violence um, and how it was really affecting them. So for instance, I had one patient tell me that um, she didn't want to join a neighborhood walking group that I was trying to get her to join uh, because she was concerned about safety joining that walking group. Um, another woman told me that she didn't leave her house for two weeks uh, because she was concerned about her safety. Um, and then I had another patient who um, was really depressed because her daughter actually moved to Michigan um, on account of the violence. And so um, I just started hearing all of these stories, um, especially during that crime surge from 2014 to 2016, which didn't just impact Chicago, but actually impacted cities nationwide. Um, and um, it really started to get me thinking about how does a context of violence and living in a neighborhood um, where there is a context of violence uh, really affect people's health. So, um, so that kind of uh, led us to really um, start thinking through a number of questions pertaining to violence and chronic disease. So just to give everybody a little bit of background, um, community violence defined by the World Health Organization is violent acts taking place outside the home among people who may or may not know each other. Um, it disproportionately affects neighborhoods with concentrated poverty and residential segregation by race. We know that there are direct effects of violence, so you can either be the victim of a violent act or there are indirect effects. So most of our patients actually um, experience these secondary effects such as hearing gunshots at night um, or having a close friend or family member who's been affected by violence. 
Um, and so one of the first studies that we did to kind of look at this is, is really just a classic epidemiological study. And so we looked at 324 census tracts in Chicago. Um, we looked at the violent crime rates in each census tract and paired them to patient health records um, at the University of Chicago. And so we saw, um, we looked at about 15,000 patients, um, looked at kind of the, uh, their residential address, where they live, the rates of violence um, near or around their home. We actually did some mapping looking at the, the radius about one mile from their home. Um, and essentially what we found was that folks who lived in neighborhoods where there were higher rates of violence even after adjusting for things like age, gender, race, ethnicity, um, insurance status, uh, poverty level, we, we still saw this relationship um, between exposure to violence and um, rates of obesity and hypertension. So um, this led to um, something that we're now calling the Chicago Violence Neighborhoods and Health Study. Um, and for this study, we really wanted to um, first orient our understanding of the relationship between community violence and chronic disease uh, through the inclusion of self-described patient experiences to really start getting that patient perspective. Um, oh, whoops. And then we also wanted to deepen our understanding of the mechanisms that drive that relationship. So um, to do that, we, um, we started recruiting patients from two geographic epicenters of, of crime. Um, and so we looked um, on the east side in Hyde Park and Woodlawn, and then here on the west side here at Lawndale. Um, and then we included anybody who was 18 years and older who had a Chicago-based address. Um, exclusion criteria were severe mental illness just because we wanted to avoid triggering um, during conversations about violence life-threatening illness, um, and also anybody who's a current perpetrator of violence to create a safe space um, in our focus groups. Um, and so we started with focus groups and interviews. We recruited about 51 patients. Um, focus groups uh, were only about four to six participants per group because, again, we wanted to create that safe space for people to talk. Um, groups lasted about 60 to 90 minutes. We're certainly closer to the 90-minute end. We also did interviews. Interviews were 30 to 60 minutes. Um, and then we audio recorded every focus group and interview and transcribed them verbatim for, uh, for data analysis. Um, and then we also did a series of surveys that we just wrapped up. Um, we did 504 surveys, um, both in uh, Hyde Park Woodlawn and here at Lawndale. Um, we used computer-assisted personal interviewing uh, software on tablets. Um, and then we also offered everybody a verbal interview in case they were un uncomfortable or unfamiliar with the tablets. Um, and surveys lasted about 45 to 60 minutes. Um, so these are participant characteristics from our survey sample. Um, so essentially about 83% were from um, University of Chicago, 17% uh, were from here. Um, most of our patients were um, a little bit older in age, so about 77% uh, were 50 plus. 71% uh, were female gender, um, which is pretty characteristic of clinic populations. Um, the majority of patient, our patients were black, non-Hispanic. We did have about 14% who are Hispanic, Latino. Um, and then, you know, our, our sample population was actually quite educated. Uh, more than half had some college or a four-year college uh, degree or more. Um, and, you know, this isn't up there, but despite that, more than half were also unemployed. Um, but I think some of that has to do with retirement status. Um, and then more than half had uh, Medicaid uh, or were dual eligible um, or they had Medicare. Um, in terms of just descriptive data on our experiences um, of violence, we saw in the top box that 62% reported some kind of exposure to community violence. Um, and this was either as a direct victim, which was 41% of our sample, 
um, or as an indirect witness, friend, or family member of someone who died violently. Um, and so that was 49% of our sample. So if you think about that, half of the patients in our sample had actually um, either directly seen somebody die violently or had a close friend or family member die violently. Um, in terms of exposure to police violence, um, this was actually a little bit higher than we anticipated, about a third. Um, we're also either the direct victim or an indirect witness, friend, or family member of someone who experienced police violence. Um, and then in terms of exposure to any police stop, about 58% um, had uh, any kind of police stop, but of those uh, folks who were stopped by police at some point in their lives, 18% actually met DSM-5 criteria for it being a traumatic stop, meaning that they were um, fearful for their life or they actually sustained a serious injury. Um, and then 21% of our sample screened positive for PTSD. So, um, so we're gonna go through some emergent themes. And so um, these are themes from our focus groups and interviews and then you know, kind of intermittent with that, I'll give you um, or I'll show you some of the results that are emerging from our survey. Um, so we are, we are actually just starting to analyze our survey and so a lot of the survey um, study results are actually unpublished. So you guys are actually the first group to kind of hear some of those results which, um, which is great. Uh, but, um, but essentially the qualitative work is published um, but the quantitative work is still emerging and we're, we're gonna try to get some of those out um, around May. So um, the first theme is uh, if you look like a square risk of being targeted. So um, a lot of our participants um, kind of described that they, they were at higher risk of being targeted either because of their age or because of their chronic conditions. So one patient said, I'm 66, okay, and I use public transportation. I worry about my safety because I ain't as fast as I used to be because if you look like a square or whatever, they'll attack you. They prey on old people. Um, somebody else said, I concern myself savvy about what's happening around me and I will not go into areas where I know that I'm gonna be singled out as such. But I'm a senior, I've got a condition where I need a cane and I probably look like I could be pushed over pretty easy. Um, another theme that was very common and very uh, prevalent in all of our focus groups was this theme of hypervigilance. Um, a lot of patients felt like they had to have their guard up at all times because of the violence in their neighborhoods. Um, and this took on the form of internalized hypervigilance. Uh, one patient said, just the thought of being in the streets, you have to have your guard up. If you don't have your guard up in this city, in any neighborhood, then you're making a big mistake. Um, somebody else said, I'm aware for my survival, constantly aware of what's happening. You have to be conscious if you don't want to get robbed. This um, sometimes also took on the form of externalized hypervigilance. Um, so one patient um, who was older said, I carry a knife. I don't want to be a victim. Even when I go to church on Sunday, I got it on me because I'm on public transportation. I sit on the bus or the train uh, reading my newspaper, but I have one hand on the paper, one hand on the knife. It's unfortunate that you have to live that way, but to be aware is to be alive. Um, so this theme of hypervigilance was um, something that we really wanted to dive into deeper, uh, mostly because we did hear it over and over again in every focus group, um, and you know, folks actually wanted to talk about this a lot. So um, in our survey, we measured hypervigilance using something called the Brief Hypervigilance Scale. Um, hypervigilance is actually something that they measure a lot in veteran populations, um, but they, they really um, don't have a good handle, um, and it's not well characterized in community um, populations. And so we were actually, um, there aren't very many studies that kind of measure hypervigilance in a community setting, um, but essentially these were the questions that we asked, you know, as soon as I wake up, um, I look for signs of trouble when I'm outside. Um, you know, I think ahead about what I would do if someone were trying to harm me. 
Um, I notice when I'm in a new place to, that I scan um, the crowd or the surroundings. When I'm in public, I feel overwhelmed because I can't keep track of things that are going on around me. Um, or I feel that if I don't stay alert and watchful, something will happen. So um, these were the questions that we asked. And then we essentially um, looked at the association between different types of violence exposure and hypervigilance scores in our population. So, um, so on the left, you can see uh, the different types of um, exposure. And then across the top, you see the hypervigilance level. And first, um, I just kind of want to draw attention to the fact that our mean hypervigilance score, even in the best case scenario, so being unexposed to either um, direct or indirect violence, was 51%. And so in the validation sample um, for, this, uh, for this scale, the, um, the score for an average PTSD patient was 39%. And so hypervigilance in our sample was actually extremely high. Um, and essentially what we saw was that those who were exposed to community violence had a 5.5 higher hy uh, point hypervigilance score. Um, and uh, that was statistically significant, even after adjusting for um, you know, all of the sociodemographic characteristics that we saw earlier. But um, those who were exposed to police violence actually had 10-point higher hypervigilance scores, um, which was also statistically significant. And then um, when we look at any police stop, that was not statistically significant, so no difference between exposed and unexposed groups. Um, but when we look at a traumatic police stop, um, it actually went up to 20 points higher. Um, which, uh, which we expected to see a little bump, but we actually didn't expect it to be so high. Um, and so, you know, you can see kind of a doubling of the effect for folks exposed to police violence compared to community, and then a quadrupling of the effect if they've had a traumatic police stop. Um, any questions at this point? The, um, was it the geographic um, epicenters that you chose? Lundell and um, High Park West Woodlawn? What kind of yeah, so part of it was convenience. Um, so, I mean, the border of Englewood is directly adjacent to the border of Hyde Park Woodlawn. And so, in many ways, you know, the catchment from that place is actually, um, you know, the same catchment as the Englewood catchment. Um, but also, I mean, if you, look, if you look at a map in terms of hot spotting um, the violence, it is pretty close to those two epicenters um, in terms of your highest rates in the city. Now, did you guys change your population? Or, I mean, you mentioned they were older. Is there a reason for that? Or? Yeah, so it, we were just sampling from the clinics. And so, um, you know, it, it ends up being um, pretty representative of who comes to a primary care clinic. Any other questions? What's a traumatic police stop? Yes, so DSM-5 criteria um, essentially says that an event is traumatic um, if you feel like your life was threatened or if you were seriously injured. Um, and so those are the criteria for a traumatic event. It, it is kind of, um, a lot of people do debate about what's you know the best way to define trauma. Um, a lot of people don't like the event-based metric but for now, that's what's in the DSM-5, so that's what we used. The police stopped them or somebody else? So um, we asked patients, um, have you ever been stopped by police? And then if they answered yes, they were asked, did you feel that your life was threatened or were you seriously injured or harmed? Um, so our next theme um, was social breakdown. You want to help people less. Um, this, uh, 
this was a pretty common theme as well, and I think a lot of times hypervigilance actually resulted in the notion um, that you know people had to be a little bit more on guard even in their social relationships. Um, and so uh, a lot of times this actually took the form of an internalized distrust of neighbors. So one patient um, told this story. One day I was working in my yard. I was bending over and a young guy walks up to me. He had his hand in a paper bag. It looked like a gun, uh, but it was a drill that he wanted to sell me. You know, it scared me. My heart was pounding so hard I thought I was going to have a heart attack out there. And I don't like to think that way of my people. Somebody else said, um, I thought my neighbors were thugs. I thought they might break into my house when I'm not there. You know, it's just a train of mind and thought, but I was kind of welcomed. So looks are deceiving. Um, and so this was actually a very prevalent theme. A lot of people talked about how um, they had these, the sense of mistaken distrust, and they had a lot of shame about that. They, they were upset that they had these incidences where you know, they, they thought somebody might harm them, but in reality, um, they were a safe neighbor. So um, others talked about wanting to help others less. It was mentioned we try to help each other, we try to help people. We, we tend to want to do that less these days because, again, crime and violence, because I don't know who you are, and if you walk towards me, I put my hand up, stop. I don't want you within seven feet of me. Um, and related to that, folks started talking about chronic isolation. So um, this took on the form of physical isolation. That's really what's keeping me inside. I would like to come out, but I stay inside because violent incidents are going on. I have arthritis. It certainly affects it because you can't get out to walk on a day-to-day -day basis. That would help the arthritis, but I stay in the house pretty much. Um, somebody said, if you're scared to go out of the house, you're not going to get the help that you need. Um, and sometimes physical isolation um, turned into social isolation. So um, one woman said, I'm scared for my family to come visit because of it. And they're like, you're on the west side. I'm not going to come visit you. Being condemned to your own house that you don't even want to go out, but at the same time you need to go out. Um, somebody else, uh, a man said, we're left with females who are clearly fearful. Some will not go out at night. So if there's an event they've been invited to from 7 to 9, most of them won't go. And that's because of violence. What it does is you become a true homebody. You stay inside. Um, so this issue of social isolation um, was also really interesting to us. And so it's, it's also um, pretty extensively in our survey. We used um, a social isolation module from the NSHEP study, which is the National Social uh, Life, Health, and Aging Project. And essentially, we measured social network characteristics, living arrangements, social support, social participation, and loneliness. Um, and in particular, I don't know if um, anyone has been following this in the media, but loneliness, um, folk, folks are kind of obsessed with it. It's, it's, um, it's been really big recently. The United Kingdom actually appointed a minister of loneliness. And so there, there is an entire governmental body that is um, assigned with looking at loneliness in the UK. Um, and then, you know, Eric Kleinenberg, who is... Um, infamous sociologist, he, um, he recently wrote this op-ed essentially saying, everybody's saying loneliness is epidemic. Is that true? Um, and his argument was actually that by making loneliness an epidemic, you overemphasize the ubiquity, and you end up not having resources for the people who really need it. Um, and so this was um, an idea that I was really interested in, um, this idea that you know, maybe it's not epidemic, and maybe there are certain risk factors for loneliness. Um, that, that should actually guide where we put our resources. And so violence was something that came up in our focus groups as being um, highly connected to social isolation and loneliness. So we looked at that. So in our survey, we measured loneliness. Um, and uh, essentially, this is um, 
uh, this is a bar graph of looking at the gray unexposed um, to the various categories of violence and the red exposed. Um, and as you can see, all of these differences are statistically significant. So any exposure to violence, um, you have a significantly higher percentage of patients reporting loneliness. Uh, but it's actually, um, it actually increases in a stepwise fashion. So um, it's graded by the type of violence encountered. And loneliness increases from indirect exposure to direct exposure with the highest levels of loneliness for those with PTSD. Um, and so, you know, I, I think it could be argued that, um, you know, we should really be directing our resources for loneliness um, to communities that need it most. And, um, you know, communities that have a lot of crime or violence um, might be some of those communities where we should be focusing our efforts. Um, and then we also looked at, this is more um, a proof of concept, but we also looked at loneliness and its relationship with health behaviors. And essentially, um, you can see that as loneliness increases, um, you have lower, um, lower fresh fruit and vegetable consumption, lower medication adherence, higher binge alcohol consumption, higher tobacco use, um, although we did not see any differences for physical activity. Any other questions? I kind of want to stop to give people a chance to ask. Yeah. <clears throat> um, it looks like the, if you go back on the slide, 55 mm -hmm. is a lot even for you know the folks who didn't have it. Right, right. and that, that's is why. That, is that a norm or is that? So, um, so right now the the estimate nationwide is 35 percent. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's why they're, they're saying loneliness is epidemic. Um, if you look at the trends in terms of social isolation, uh, the number of people who live alone has increased from 5% in the 80s to about 25% now. Um, and so, I, you know, that, that too is just, it's, it is, it is an, a public health issue. I get why people are going crazy about it. But then, if you look at the numbers here, it's even, it's even crazier. So, um, so I, you know, I do think we can at least start with targeting our resources um, to communities that need it more. Any other questions? Um, so theme five, uh, you have to have a plan, constrained choice. Uh, so participants talked a lot about um, how violence made it impossible to do a lot of their day-to-day -day activities. Um, so one patient said, your health is affected because you really can't be spontaneous. You've kind of got to have a plan. So I'm going to the grocery store at this time. I'll try not to go on the first. Let me go where I'm comfortable. Wait for when my daughter or my son is coming. You need to have a ride or something. Um, somebody else said, I'll point out, I'm not going to buy groceries like mom and pop used to. I'm going to run to the fast food restaurant because it's quicker and you don't have to go past them, guys. I try to cook more healthy food, but it's still a tendency to do that because it's easier and quicker to get home, get inside. Um, and along that line, uh, a lot of people um, talked about limited access to material resources. Um, one patient said, I say to myself, I already know the neighborhood don't have no resources. There's nothing there. We didn't have grocery stores for a long time, ever since they burned one down, I guess, with the riot or whatever. Um, I feel the resources aren't evenly distributed into areas that are having the most violence. And in the long run, when you neglect neighborhoods and people get chronic illnesses, it costs the society more money to treat those chronic illnesses. Um, which was very astute, um, very astute observation. Um, other people talked about not only not having resources available, but they talked about violence being a physical barrier to those resources. Um, so one patient said, if you're fighting a condition and you own a cane or something, now you have to walk around these guys to get to the store, that affects you. Um, speaking of that, this was actually in a separate 
focus group, but pretty much the same conversation. I leave my house, you can tell they're hanging out, kids hang out in front of the store. You have to fight your way to get in the store and then fight your way to get out of the store. Um, so this was, um, this was another thing that we kind of dived into deeper, um, but essentially we performed an address-based analysis to look at patients' residential address, and then we mapped all the grocery stores, pharmacies, gyms, and fitness centers within a mile from their home using an objective database of neighborhood resources. And then we paired that to the survey data where they told us exactly which resources they actually used. Um, and then we mapped the distance to the, to the used resource um, from their home. So um, essentially what we found was that um, patients who reported that their neighborhood was somewhat or very dangerous um, were two times, had two times higher odds of not, empirically not having those resources in their neighborhood within a mile from home. So empirically, you know, 1.7 times higher odds of not having a large grocery store within a mile from home. Um, we did not see a difference for small grocery stores. 2.2 times higher odds of not having a pharmacy, 1.9 times higher odds of not having a gym or a fitness center. Um, but then we are also interested in this you know, notion that people um, have a hard time with the resources that are there physically accessing them. So um, using the mapping of the resources that they actually used, we looked at um, whether or not they bypassed nearby pharmacies. Um, even if they had one in their neighborhood, they used kind of a different one outside their neighborhood. And um, folks who had any prior experience of neighborhood crime were four, almost four times more likely to bypass a neighborhood resource, even if they had one, to use one outside of their neighborhood. Um, and then in a previous study, we showed that bypassing was associated with a higher BMI um, for both grocery stores and pharmacies. Yep? Did you also look at yeah, so, so unfortunately for this study, it wasn't asked in, so this is actually a different survey. Um, it wasn't asked in the survey. We did ask it in our new survey that we just finished. And so we are going to actually repeat this analysis with more resources um, and more data. So um, I'm actually, I'm excited to kind of look at, you know, the difference between their primary mode of transportation as well. I think some of our null, um, some of our null findings might be because of that issue. Okay, so last theme, um, and I think, you know, for the clinicians in the room, um, probably the most, uh, most well, I don't, I don't know if it's the most interesting, but I think for a lot of clinicians, maybe the most interesting. So um, our last theme was pretty unique from the other themes, um, less about the mechanisms, but more about how healthcare responds um, to the issue of violence. And so, um, so a lot of patients actually um, thought that they're, doctors should ask and that there is a lack of a healthcare response. And so we characterize them into four kinds of responses um, that people typically describe from their healthcare providers. Um, so the first, um, the first one was an insufficient response. So one patient said, uh, my, my physician has not ever asked me, but they should ask the question. They should ask and be concerned. Have you ever been confronted with a violent situation? Because I've seen uh, violent incidents happen right outside my home. I've seen someone get murdered outside my home and not really talking to anybody other than family and a few folks about it. Um, the second category was a misdirected response. Um, so this patient said, every time I go to the doctor, it's always about my weight. I go over here to the clinic and there are four doctors there. All of them focus on me being overweight. 
Overweight ain't the only way you can die. I can go outside and get shot. And I told them this. It causes you to be stuck in a box, which causes us to be stuck in a box because you can't address me like you really want to. Um, the next one is a disconnected response. Um, so this was somebody from University of Chicago, but um, he said, when you come to this little nest egg, and he said Hyde Park, um, and they tell you, think about this, then you go back into your community where everything is just blowing up. And then you go back and they say, well, did you try this and that? Because really, my thinking is, if you're living in an upscale neighborhood, um, Hyde Park, and you're driving your Mercedes Benz, and then you're gonna ask someone who can barely get 225 to get on the bus to come talk to you. It's just you're bringing two different worlds together. I don't think you understand what I'm going through. I know you got all the degrees, but I'm still living over here. You need to hire people who have a better understanding of what's going on in different communities. Um, and then the last, uh, the last one, ineffective response. And so a lot of patients essentially said, you know, I want my doctors to ask, but I also want them to have resources for me. Um, and so the three kinds of resources that people talked about most often was first, safe resources. So one patient said, if doctors just had a list of where we could go and what we could do, anything for seniors that we'll feel safe going to. Um, somebody else, a lot of people talked about mental health resources. Clearly, counseling will help. On the health side, counseling people about the effects of violence. And then uh, finally, spiritual health resources. I went in with medical issues and the doctor addressed my experience of violence. And this is just my opinion, but mostly the answer is a spiritual connection. So um, in conclusion, patients often struggle to balance the challenges imposed by violence with the demands of living with managing their chronic conditions. Um, Hypervigilance, chronic isolation and loneliness, constrained choice and limited access to resources were some of the most prominent themes. Um, participants generally agreed that physicians and healthcare providers should be cognizant of community violence in clinical settings um, and should offer resources. Um, and I'm just gonna end with a Wendell Berry quote uh, in honor of Dr. D. <laughs> um, what we owe the future is not a new start, for we can only begin with what has happened. We owe the future the past, the long knowledge that is the potency of time to come. And special thanks to um, Bruce Roll, Wayne Detmer, Caitlin Fong for helping with this study and um, supporting this research. <laughs>